When I made the decision to document the storage papers in the form of a podcast, I found Anchor to be the easiest way to create it. By using Anchor, I'm able to share this show with you absolutely free. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place, and you can produce the show right from your phone, tablet, or computer. Their easy-to-use creation tools allow anyone with the app to record and edit a podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere podcasts can be found. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can also easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And let me know when you do so I can check out your show. You're listening to The Storage Papers. Episode 11, The Divine Acolytes. This is a letter from Brianna Scanlon to Ron Hammond, dated Sunday, February 8, 2015. Detective Anderson gave me your contact information and said you could help. I think my brother Ben and I may be in danger and it might be my fault. He just told me about this guy who came to his house last week with a really big grin. Well, I know who he is and why he's coming after Ben. At least, I know who he used to be. His name is Malcolm Foy, and I was dating him for about four months. I met him at a friend's Halloween party last year. I actually asked Ben for a ride there, and he may have even met him since he stayed for a drink or two, but I'm not certain. I remember Malcolm was the only person at the party who wasn't wearing a costume. He looked so different then. I went dressed as Harley Quinn, and I remember giving him a hard time about not dressing up for the party. The first thing he said to me was, You sweet-talking me? All that chit-chat's gonna get you hurt. Which really threw me off at first, and also turned some heads because not everyone understood the reference. Then I remembered that it was one of the Joker's lines from the movie Suicide Squad, and I had to explain that to a couple of my guy friends who looked like they were ready to tear him apart. I'm not like a super fan of the comic books or anything, I just like the character's style in the movie. Once I saved him from being pummeled, we actually had a chance to talk for quite a while. I had never been interested in an older man before, and I thought he was probably 10 or 15 years older than me, around his mid to late 40s, though he looks much older now. At that point, he had a full head of hair and nice teeth, and I didn't see a wedding ring on his finger. I had to admit he was rather charming. He had a great sense of humor, and even though he needed some styling help with his choice of clothing, he seemed like a catch. We were out on the back porch talking for a couple hours at least. When we decided to go back inside, most of the party had left except for my friend who lived there and a few of my other close friends. They were gathered in the living room playing some kind of game. 
As we approached them, we saw a Ouija board laying out on the coffee table, and all five of my friends had their hands on the planchette. Malcolm and I just stood and watched for a few minutes. I never really bought into the whole afterlife thing until recently, but everyone there seemed to just believe they had made some kind of spiritual communication. They were asking questions and believed the planchette was being moved by some disembodied spirit. I admit I was intrigued. When they invited us to join them, I thought, why not? I looked at Malcolm and said, are you up for it? His reply was odd. He had a smirk on his face and said, I already know what they're going to say, and then leaned against the wall to watch us. We took turns asking questions, and when it was my turn, I made sure to take the skeptic's approach and asked, If you're real, can you make the lights flicker? The planchette moved to the word yes, and we all waited in anticipation. After ten seconds or so, the next person began to ask a question, but just as they started speaking, the lights flickered on and off for about four or five seconds. This kind of freaked everybody out, and people started letting go of the planchette. I was the last person touching it, and I felt it turning under my fingertips. It didn't appear to be pointing at a specific letter on the board, but I realized amidst the lights going on and off, it had turned to point toward Malcolm. It happened in what seemed like a split second, but as the lights continued to flicker, I would see Malcolm clear as day in the light, but when they turned off, his silhouette looked like something else. His outline was significantly taller than he was, I'd estimate between 7 and 8 feet tall, and he almost looked like a giant bird, except he had horns growing out the sides of his head, curving and pointing down at the floor. And I could have sworn I saw long wings folded by his sides, and what looked like talons for arms. At the sight of this, I took my hands off the planchette, and the lights immediately stopped flickering. Of course, I thought I might have possibly had too much to drink, because... When the lights stayed on, I looked at Malcolm and he seemed confused by the way I was looking at him. He just said, wow, that was interesting, very nonchalant, and everyone else laughed it off as a coincidence. The whole thing made me really uncomfortable, but I half-heartedly tried to laugh it off like everybody else, and then I retreated to my friend's spare room. Malcolm actually followed me and asked if I was okay, and he kind of put me at ease by convincing me that what happened was just a coincidence. We set up a dinner date for the following weekend and began to see each other. About three or four weeks after that, he invited me to his church for a 10 a.m. service. I arrived about 10 minutes till and sat in one of the pews in the far back, thinking it would be easier to find him when he walked in. I also hated that part of the service where everyone's supposed to stand and greet one another, so I was hoping I wouldn't be next to anybody else. You see, I was raised in a very religious home, and kind of walked away during my rebellious teen years and never really turned back. The service started a few minutes late, and I was surprised to hear Malcolm's voice behind me when I was turned around towards the entrance looking for him. He was actually the person giving the sermon. I could tell he was scanning the congregation as he spoke, and when his eyes met mine, he smirked just a little, but continued on. He spoke of the end of days, and legions of demons scouring the earth. It was the typical fire and brimstone fear tactic that I had experienced growing up, 
but it was in a different way. He never spoke of repentance. He just focused on the message of preparing oneself for the apocalypse, but without the getting saved portion that I had grown so accustomed to. Aside from that, it seemed like stuff I'd heard before. I began attending more and more services as we dated, and eventually I began serving in the church throughout the week. Once people knew I was romantically involved with Malcolm, they treated me like royalty. It was a welcoming feeling at first, but over time, as I learned more of what they were about, it became increasingly uncomfortable. A small central group called themselves the Order of the Divine Acolytes. I thought this name was a little Old Testament, but... It wasn't until I really got involved that I started to see some warning signs. We would hold smaller, more intimate sessions throughout the week, usually at night. Over the course of the next couple months, Malcolm would begin experiencing changes. One Friday night, we were all gathered in the church when he said we were going to do something a little different that night. He said it was time to recommit ourselves to the cause. He invited a small group of us up to the pulpit, and it was then that he removed his headpiece. It was like a tall hat that he would wear when he gave his formal sermons on Sundays. When he took it off, his head was completely bald. This was shocking to me because I had just seen him a couple days prior, and he had a full head of hair. Something seemed different about him. Normally, he would sneak a little wink at me when he was speaking in kind of a flirty way. He was all serious that night. There was an altar there, which had been draped with a white cloth that he uncovered. On top of it, there was a chalice. It was beautifully shimmering, all silver, with gold lining the rim of the cup at the base. Everyone's eyes grew wide, as if they were admiring the beauty of this cup like I was. I don't know why, but... When I was looking around at everyone's facial expressions, it occurred to me that the crosses which had been hanging on the walls were all gone. I looked around the room remembering the giant cross at the back of the stage, the crosses at either side of the pews, and the one that hung above the rear balcony. All were missing except the one over the rear balcony. That cross had been hung upside down that night. As I turned around to look at Malcolm again, he held a large ornate dagger in his hand. It was unsheathed, but the craftsmanship looked similar to the chalice, and there were rubies on the hilt. He laid it to rest on both of his hands with his palms up, and he went around the circle we had formed. There must have been ten of us, and he addressed us one by one, stating our name, and asking if we were prepared to declare our allegiance. When he came around to me, he stared at me coldly, and I almost felt threatened. He said, Bree, will you declare your allegiance? I considered how to answer for a moment, but looking around the room, the eyes looking back at me seemed prepared to harm me if I said no. I looked at Malcolm once more before answering, and I swear he grew taller, and some of his features seemed different. Perhaps it was just the lighting, but it was truly intimidating. Yeah, intimidating is the perfect term to describe him in that moment. I was compelled to say yes. After everyone had confirmed, 
I watched as he gently took the tip of the dagger to prick the index finger of the first person. He held the dagger horizontally over the cup with his right hand, and with his left, he pinched the bleeding finger, placing three drops of blood into the chalice. He didn't even clean the knife before moving to the next person. Every instinct I had told me to run, but I couldn't. He went around the room until it was my turn. I felt lightheaded as he squeezed the drops of blood from my finger, but I was able to remain upright. Once everyone had their turn, he performed the ritual on himself, then he put the dagger in its sheath. He then grabbed the chalice and walked a second time around to each of us. He placed his still-bleeding finger in the chalice and dipped it into the blood, then wiped it on our foreheads in the symbol of an upside-down cross, chanting something in Latin, which he repeated with each of us. And then he marked himself, saying something a bit different. At that moment, his face became shrouded in shadow, and his eyes... His eyes turned black for just a moment, then returned to normal. I had never witnessed anything like it before, and I wondered if I was the only person to see it. As I looked around, everyone seemed giddy almost. They were looking at him rather emphatically. And then we were done. Everyone acted like they'd just finished a normal Sunday service. I heard one person invite another to a barbecue the next day, and someone started talking about their kid's performance in the school play. The more people just acted normally, the more uncomfortable I felt. Malcolm approached me and asked if I wanted to go out for coffee. At that point, it was after 9 p.m., so I turned him down, saying I had to be at work the next morning, and I wanted to be able to sleep that night. So I went home and had the worst nightmares of my life that night. I must have woken up every 10 or 15 minutes the whole night thinking someone was in my home. I couldn't tell if I was dreaming or not, but I kept seeing myself lying in bed, surrounded by shadowy figures of people. They were all just standing there staring at me, and at the very foot of my bed, I saw one shadow that stood out among the others. It was taller and had wings, which would flare open when I tried to look at its face. I just thought if I could see details, I might see... Well, I thought I might see Malcolm's face. The problem was, every time the wings would open up, I'd wake right up, and then doze off a few minutes later to repeat the same process. I also noticed since that night that I had begun missing time. There were periods of hours that I couldn't remember throughout my days, but apparently I had continued showing up where I needed to be, and nobody mentioned me being missing or anything. I was still getting paid for the scheduled shifts at work. What time wasn't missing was blurry. Life began to feel like a dream state where I would be going through the motions and doing my job, for example, at the hospital, but I wasn't in control of my actions. You know when you multitask, like having a phone conversation while you're driving? Well, you don't really think about the driving parts, you just do it. Only there were times where I would be preoccupied with my thoughts and visions of the shadow people, but at the same time, I was aware that I was stealing medications regularly from the hospital. I've never done that, and I could lose my nursing license if I got caught. I could also recall an occasion where I searched for and downloaded specific medical records onto a flash drive. 
I had no motivation to do this, but it was like I was willfully letting someone else drive my body. And I just sat by and watched, without objection, barely aware of what I was doing. And then I remember giving those things to Malcolm. Those were the times that, upon delivery, I remembered that grin getting incredibly wide, and his face just stopped looking like it belonged to him. I hope that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't, even to me. I began avoiding Malcolm for a little while after that until he called me out on it. He knew something was off and wouldn't leave me alone until I agreed to meet with him. And of course, when we met up, he was charming as usual. I don't know why I fell for it, but he still had that mix of flirtatiousness and wit that was impossible to push away. I found myself questioning my thoughts connecting him to that winged creature from my dreams. I was beginning to think that I needed a shrink. We started hanging out again nearly every day, but since that night, we did the bloodletting ritual thing. He was always talking to people and inviting them to his church. He was a master of segues. He actually bought this couple coffee once. They'd been behind us in line and said it was his good deed for the day. Of course, that struck up a conversation where the couple thanked him, and he used that as an opportunity to plug his church. He was like a politician, crafting his words with great care, like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books, only there was a single ending that all paths led toward. He could read when people became uncomfortable and knew exactly when to back off. I didn't know whether to admire him or be afraid of him. He was so persuasive. So he continued to take every opportunity to do this, even when we were out on dates, which frustrated me to no end. He began attending church events without even inviting me, which I was fine with, I guess. wasn't quite sure how I felt about it anyways, and I'm sure he was keen to that. I still went on Sundays and started noticing a theme every couple of weeks. People in the congregation that I had once met were going missing. I'm not sure how many others have noticed this since new people kept arriving. Core members who knew them would hold group gatherings to pray for the missing. And then a couple of weeks ago, I saw some news coverage that showed not only the name of the latest missing person in the congregation, but their picture as well. It was someone I remembered from the bloodletting ceremony. When I brought this up with Malcolm, he thought I knew, but in reality, I didn't know anyone's name from that night. It wasn't until the photo was shown that I made the connection. We continued on, and eventually he started asking about my family and friends and why they were never around. When I told him I just don't introduce all my boyfriends to them, we had the whole talk about commitment and decided we were more than just casual as a couple. That was when I agreed to introduce him to Ben, with one condition. He agreed not to talk about church when we met. So I called Ben and arranged a dinner over at his place. Malcolm seemed pretty excited when I told him, and not the least bit nervous when I mentioned Ben had a tendency to be a little overprotective of his little sister. He asked me to pick him up at the church before heading over to Ben's place, so I did. I pulled up right outside the door and honked a couple of times. When Malcolm didn't come out right away, I decided to head inside to see if I could find him. The lobby had a TV that had the local news on. Right before I reached the door to the chapel, coverage of a homicide caught my attention. 
I stepped closer to the TV and watched as they identified the victim, Gerald Hubert. The photograph of the man they showed was another one of the men who had been at the bloodletting ceremony with me. In a flashback in my mind, I realized he had been standing right next to me that night. They found him dead in a local hotel room with initial reports that he took a shotgun to his own head. As I watched, the TV suddenly turned off. I turned around to see Malcolm with a remote in his hand. Three other members of the congregation stood behind him. All of them were standing perfectly still, just staring at me. Malcolm said, are you ready to go? I didn't want to let them know that I recognized the man on the news, so I tried to act casual and I said, yeah, and conjured up a smile. Then he suggested we take his car. I got the impression that disagreeing would be unwise. The drive over to Ben's was quiet, and I hadn't even really looked at him since I got in the car. When we pulled up in front of Ben's house, Malcolm finally asked what was wrong. When I turned to look at him, I was surprised to see his appearance had changed even more. He looked pale and sickly, like he had aged ten years since the last time I saw him. He also didn't seem to have any eyebrows. It reminded me of someone who was undergoing chemotherapy, but that couldn't be right. He would have told me, and with the amount of time we spent together, I would have known. I told him I'd been having second thoughts about our relationship. I wasn't about to let him know I recognized the guy on TV. I just knew I needed to distance myself from him. He didn't say much at first. He just asked if we were taking a break or if we were done for good. I told him I wasn't sure yet and that I'd have to think about it. That's when he really flipped out. He started lashing out at me in the car, saying things in a tone of voice that I didn't recognize. Things like, if you think you can do better, then you're not worthy of my presence, and that I would live to regret the day that I turned him down. He even said he'd be waiting for me to come crawling back. When I said that will never happen, he became enraged. He wasn't just angry, he was furious. That's when he began yelling at me in Latin, spit running off his chin and spraying in my face. I didn't realize how far down in the corner of my seat I was until Ben opened my car door and I nearly fell out on the ground. He must have heard the yelling and came out to investigate. I'm glad he did too. I'd never seen that side of Malcolm before. Ben pulled me out of the car and stood me up, and Malcolm got out of the driver's side and stood there on his side of the car. Ben said, I think it's time for you to leave. Malcolm just smiled. He was calm again and you'd never guess that he just finished yelling in my face two seconds ago. Then he said the strangest thing. He said, these are strange times marked by unexplainable things happening all around us. Look all around you. He who has eyes, let him see. Ben told him one more time to leave, and said that if he ever showed his face around me again, he would personally deal with him. Malcolm's face changed again. It was as if his pupils dilated to the full size of his eyes, and he smiled a larger smile than I'd ever seen on him before. He said in an extremely calm voice, You've already earned my protection, but you haven't paid the price. 
I'll be collecting soon. And if it can't be from you, then it will be from someone dear to you. He looked at Ben when he said this. At this, Ben started walking around the car to get physical with Malcolm, but he quickly got in his car and slammed the door. He drove away slowly, and as he did, I could have sworn I saw something irregular. It was dark outside, but I thought I saw Malcolm's head turn completely around to look at us while he drove away. He was still grinning. Once he was out of sight, I started crying. When we went inside, I asked Ben what he thought about that smile he gave. Ben acted like he hadn't seen it, and said it was pretty dark out and really didn't even get a good look at his face. I ended up staying the night at Ben's on his pull-out couch. He agreed to drive me to my car the next morning, which was still at the church. Thankfully, we were able to pick it up without having to interact with anyone there. There's one more thing. I've been watching the news, and I saw another man from the church. He was killed in a hotel nearby. I'm worried that Ben or I might be next, and we either need protection or we need to get away from here. I know I don't have what you'd call hard evidence that these things are related, but you have to agree it isn't merely a coincidence. I could really use your help. It's abundantly clear that at least some of these documents are related to one another. And I think I'm going to need to take some time to conduct some research here going forward before I produce any additional episodes for the show. Or at least to get these more organized to find out which ones might be related. There's also a few people I'm going to need to get in contact with. These accounts make me wonder how much of this stuff is still occurring, and I'm wondering why I'm being both encouraged by a disembodied voice and discouraged by some anonymous person sending me voice messages to share them. So in review, all of these documents pertain to events pretty local to Southern California, from what I can tell at least, and some of the documents go as far back as the 1980s, and up until as recent as last year. I'd really like to find Detective Mark Anderson. I'm also going to try to do some research on this Order of the Divine Acolytes as well. But now I'd like to take this time to share with you a recent development. I received a letter from someone claiming to be the previous owner of the storage papers, and after going through some of the recent documents on the podcast here, I felt quite certain I knew who this individual was. I've been doing my own investigatory efforts to track this man down for several weeks, and now it appears as if we both have the same goals to connect. I'd like to read this letter to you that I received after nearly giving up my search. Let me just say reaching this man proved to be nearly impossible. So you're aware I did try several leads I had. I started with the people who ran the storage unit. They agreed to provide me with a phone number for Ron Hammond, which I called and left several voice messages on. It was the same phone number I eventually found on a loose business card with the boxes containing these documents. It was actually two business cards that I found. One was for his services as a licensed private investigator, and the other was much more vague. The vague card was all black, and on the front, it simply had his initials, RH, in dark gray font. It was barely legible unless you held the card under the light. Flipping it over, you could see the phrase, for help with the unexplained, and his phone number was listed immediately below it. 
I also did some internet research and found two office locations and a home address for Ron Hammond, private investigator. I took a couple of Saturdays and dropped in on all of these. The home was a rental and leased to someone else for the previous 18 months. The office locations were both empty, and the contact information the landlords provided for Ron was the same information I already had. I wasn't able to find any social media connections, friends, or family. My only other potential lead was via Detective Anderson, if I could find him. But on Saturday last week, I was surprised to see a handwritten letter in the mail addressed to me without a return address. It simply stated RH, where the return address would have been written, and it was postmarked in Tijuana, Mexico. I'd like to read this letter's contents to you now, but I'm also making the choice to redact some information until I can verify it. If I can, I'll certainly make sure to update you with any important details. So here is the letter from Ron Hammond to me, addressed as the producer of the Storage Papers podcast. A date was not provided. It says, Dear Jeremy, First of all, I'd like to thank you for preventing my files from being lost or destroyed. Those documents have taken me years to collect, and I'm comforted to know they now belong to someone with a passion for the paranormal. I hope one day we can potentially work together to piece together some information and even possibly to organize my work, which is something I've been meaning to do. It's just that once the ball got rolling on these unique cases, it was extremely difficult to find the time, and I had no assistant to do it for me. You see, working with these kinds of cases doesn't pay well, if at all. If you charge a fee or refuse to provide a service, people can think you're biased. Since I've built my reputation on providing an unbiased view, let's just say reputations must be upheld. I've never been one to offer my own opinion. I simply document what people say and what I find. Then I relay information to those who hire me. While I'm grateful that such an enthusiast is in possession of my work, I should caution you. You must take time to solidify your faith if you have any. It is for that very purpose that I'm spending some time with some trusted clergy at the moment in preparation for some anticipated challenges. You must be strong in your faith to continue in the direction you're going. If that's the case, I'm happy to move ahead with you. Otherwise, you should stop now and never speak of these things again. Doing so could place you in harm's way. I would very much like to get to know you and your beliefs on religion and the afterlife. While I appreciate your caution in your podcast to avoid your personal views, a professional choice, by the way, I would highly discourage you from pursuing an active investigation into any of these documents without acquiring a steadfast belief in your creator. I fear it may be too late to avoid consequence, given the reports that you are being followed, and in light of some of the particular things you're expressing in your residential location. And in case you're wondering, yes, I am listening to your podcast as I've had the opportunity. Though I'm not currently at liberty to meet you in person, I would like you to know that you have the support from people I hold very dear, and I will be able to meet with you soon. Until then, I'd like to suggest that you take a step back from your production of your podcast until such time that I can explain some things in person. I'd also like to provide you with some backstory on these documents, which you refer to as the storage papers, and how I came to the decision to archive them. 
As you've already gathered, I have a military background, followed by some time in law enforcement, and eventually ended up leaving the force and going into business of my own. I won't go into why, but perhaps I'll share that story with you over a beer in the future. It took about two years to really get my private investigation business going. You see, I was a detective and had a lot of great research skills, but I now have some physical limitations that inhibit me from being capable of the full job description of a detective. Within a couple years of me starting my PI firm, I developed an excellent reputation for obtaining information, documenting evidence, and for being able to find resolutions quickly. You see, some PIs will charge a lot more money than they should and tell the clients it's because they spent a lot of time doing research. Well, I always thought the research portion was easy. It was always the verification of information that proved to be difficult. In most cases, I was quite a bit more efficient than my competition. Then one day, I was hired by a middle-aged woman to gather information on her husband. They had a couple of kids, a dog, and the typical suburban lifestyle here in San Diego. She believed he had been cheating on her because he switched to the swing shift and would often come home from work and go straight into the shower. On the few occasions she managed to interact with him before his shower, she said he smelled different. Sometimes he smelled like perfume, sometimes cologne, but not his cologne. She even considered that he might have had an ongoing homosexual relationship on the side, which would have been very scandalous back in those days. I agreed to take her case and began some surveillance on the husband. The guy worked for some pharmaceutical sales company, and from what I learned at first, he checked out. His hours had changed because he oversaw international accounts in a different time zone. I spent a good couple of weeks following him around, looking for the slightest deviation in his routine. I had almost considered the investigation a lost cause until one Thursday night when he left work early. I followed him to one of those seedy bars on the outskirts of downtown, and I wasn't able to observe him from the outside, so I ended up having to go into the bar and have a drink or two, just waiting to see what he was there to do. He didn't spend very long there. I was pretty sure he just ordered water, but he didn't even touch it. Still, he tipped the bartender before walking over to a blonde woman in her mid-thirties who had obviously too much to drink. He took a hand and brushed her hair away from her ear and whispered something to her. She laughed, and then he led her hand gently toward the restrooms in the back of the establishment. Back then, we didn't have the quality video cameras on cell phones like we do today, but I had this small camera set up that fit into my shirt pocket. I could only record for about five minutes with a lens that stuck out of my shirt pocket buttonhole. Most people wouldn't notice it unless they got really close. So I took a moment to set that up, trying not to let anybody see me. Then I made my way back towards the restrooms. The place was like a maze and completely dark, but eventually I was able to find the restroom. There was only one toilet and the door was slightly open. I knocked and abruptly opened it intentionally as to not allow someone the time to respond verbally. But nobody was in there. Just an empty restroom with one toilet and a sink. So I looked around a little more until I felt a breeze. I was almost certain that the temperature dropped by at least 10 or 15 degrees as well. There was a back door that had been propped open, and a cardboard drink coaster was propped in place at the foot of the door to prevent it from latching closed. I guessed that the door would lock if it were allowed to close fully. This meant that someone had the intention of returning inside. 
I was sure I was going to catch him in an adulterous act. I slowly opened the door and looked around to see if I could see anyone in the alley. I was nearly convinced nobody was there until I noticed the slightest movement down the alley to my left. It was very dark, but on the ground I saw a pair of feet with stiletto heels sticking out past the corner of a dumpster. I quietly placed the coaster back into the door frame and slowly made my way toward the dumpster, making sure to aim the camera from my shirt pocket toward it. The feet were slightly shifting back and forth, and as I approached, I could hear what sounded like wet sloshing or squishing sounds. Each sound was accompanied by a slight movement of the feet. As I rounded the corner, I couldn't believe what my eyes were witnessing. The woman who had been let outside was on her back on the ground. Suspended about three feet above her, horizontally in the air, was a dark figure. It was facing down toward her with huge claws and what looked like black smoke billowing around it. It was hard to judge its height since it was horizontal, but I would guess seven to eight feet tall. It barely fit behind the dumpster. Its mouth was open, and there was an illuminated region around the woman's chest that looked like it was being vacuumed up by the creature's mouth. Though she wasn't being touched, it appeared like she was being picked up by the chest, with her arms and head limp and resting on the ground. I must have made a noise or something because it stopped whatever it was doing and stood upright on its feet. I watched as this shadowy giant morphed back into my client's husband right before my eyes. I just stood there, mouth hanging open in a state of shock. He calmly walked over to me, lifted his hand toward my neck, and proceeded to fix my collar. Then he just smirked at me and walked back into the bar. He did not extend the courtesy of replacing the coaster in the doorframe. After I gathered my senses, I walked over to the woman by the dumpster, and she was alive, but quite impaired. She didn't appear to have been harmed in any way that I could see, except for what appeared to be burn blisters on her chest. I thought about what to tell the man's wife, but ultimately, I asked to meet with her in person in my office. I couldn't figure out what to say, and I figured she would just think I was crazy if I tried to explain, so I just showed her. I had caught the entire thing on video, including an up-close face shot of her husband when he fixed my collar. To my knowledge, she went home to get her dog, picked up her kids from school, and left town. She mailed me a check for my fee about a week later, though. I never asked her to, and did not provide a return address. I had a couple of clients within the following months hire me to investigate some unusual things going on in and around their homes. Evidently, they knew the woman who left town and spoke to her occasionally. She referred me by word of mouth because of the quality of the video I had captured and my candid nature to report what I found. I hadn't done anything special like you see on TV these days with full-spectrum and infrared video or any fancy gadgets sweeping through radio stations like you see today. I just happened to be recording when I witnessed it and had always considered myself lucky, both for being in the right place at the right time and for being able to walk away from whatever it was that I had filmed. From that moment on, my clients slowly transitioned toward more unusual cases like this, and some have called me an expert investigator, but I cringe every time I hear that. The truth, more often than not, 
as I have no idea what I'm dealing with. All of the documents I had in storage were collected over years of investigations, and I tried to keep them in chronological order, but during my last move, everything became quite unorganized. But in listening to your podcast, it has refreshed my memory concerning a few cases, and I'm quite confident that the evidence you have there contains a greater picture, one which I have a vested interest in, and from what it sounds like based on your podcast, one which you are now involved in as well. For a moment, I'd like you to consider all of the paranormal things you've encountered yourself and the sheer number of reports across the world that people are coming forward with. It is my belief that these things are becoming more and more common for a reason. We need to meet. Unfortunately, I am currently only able to travel by night, so it may take some time for me to make my way to you. But in the meantime, you should find any information you can about the demonic entity named He also sometimes goes by the name I insist you don't say his name aloud, especially on your podcast, and try to avoid even thinking about it too often so you don't draw him to you. When that happens, you likely won't be aware of his presence, as he can both inhabit the body of a host and travel independently of his true form. The safest way to investigate the paranormal is to assume anything causing activity is evil. While I don't believe that's true in 100% of the cases, there's really no way to be certain. Demonic forces can lie, they can mimic appearances and voices, and they will do everything within their power to afflict you by various means. For now, take comfort in the fact that you ultimately possess authority over them, and they can't do anything to you unless you invite them to. But be very cautious. In my experience... They also have the ability to acquire knowledge about you. They know things you may have never told anyone about. They know your deepest, darkest fears, and the smart ones, the higher-level demons, wait until the right moment when you're at your weakest to use this information to strike. They will wear you down, manipulate you, and deceive you until you let your guard down. Don't let them in. I'll be in touch as soon as possible with some instructions, But in the meantime, remain faithful and take great care. R.H. So after I received this letter, I did some additional research on Ron Hammond. I want to be cautious how much information I share at this point. He obviously has my personal address and knows a little bit about me, but I'm not sure I want to piss this guy off by saying too much. What I do know is he is a former law enforcement officer, I won't say which division at this time, as well as former military. Locals who've lived in San Diego a while may remember this from the news when it happened, but he apparently had some kind of a nervous breakdown while on duty. At least that's how the media covered his story. There was some kind of shooting involved, and it appears as if he voluntarily resigned, but some have speculated that this wasn't so voluntary. I have to admit I was on the fence about sharing Ron's letter on this podcast, but I do have a confession to make to you, the listeners. When I said this letter was received recently, that was true. What I haven't mentioned yet is that I have already had a brief phone conversation with Ron, and we have agreed to meet in a public place very soon. 
I'd like to take this opportunity to make all of the listeners aware of something, including Ron, when you hear this. That is, I'm planning on putting anything Ron sends me out publicly as part of this podcast. You see, I have the ability to schedule content releases, much like I do with each episode I record here. So, if for some reason I end up missing, or perhaps worse, I have that content scheduled for release for a future date so the authorities will know who to seek out. Of course, if it's true that Ron's intentions are not ill toward me, I am certainly happy to meet with him. I'm guessing we'd have much to discuss. However, if his intentions are otherwise, I have a contingency plan where a few scheduled emails will be sent, as well as a podcast episode of the Storage Papers, to be released in March with a slew of sensitive information. This is my insurance policy. I guess you could say I'm a hope-for-the-best but expect the worst type of guy. In addition, and either way, I'll provide some updates for everyone in March and plan to begin a second season of the storage papers if I'm around to see it through. Hopefully this will occur with Ron's assistance, but for now, I'll just need to wait and see what happens. I've said it before, and I just want to say it again. Thank you so much for listening to the storage papers. This concludes season one. I'd love to hear from you if you're able to corroborate any of the information from these episodes or if you have any working theories about what's actually happening with some of them. Opinions work too. I'd love to hear it all. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Storage Papers or email me at thestoragepapers at gmail.com. Make sure you reference the episode in your subject line. Today's season finale is episode 11, The Divine Acolytes. You can also leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash the storage papers. Please let me know if I have your permission to share any of the information you provide. I really do want to know what you think of the podcast now and after hearing the entire first season. If I can answer any questions you might have or if you'd like to share your favorite episode with me, it would also be great to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to bringing you more detailed accounts from the storage papers soon.